And um, Katie Larson is going to come and read for us uh, just three verses from the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And that was Matthew 1, 1 through 3, the word of the Lord. Thanks. Let me pray for us. Lord, uh, guide us now uh, as we uh, maybe aren't familiar with uh, preaching through a genealogy uh, for Advent or any time, uh, but as we prepare to come to this table, uh, would you make uh, the simple reading of those names uh, come to life and um, help us to more fully understand uh, the significance of who you your son was and what he came to do. Uh, may that fall fresh on our hearts uh, this morning. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right, have a seat. So I said um, at the beginning uh, when I called us to worship that this is the first Sunday uh, in Advent. And the, if you're not familiar with Advent, uh, awesome. Uh, we're glad you're here and uh, you'll be familiar with it over the next few weeks, but Advent, uh, the church has been celebrating uh, Advent for thousands of years and um, set aside uh, these weeks building up to the birth of Christ or Christmas Day as we know it. Um, and they have retold this Christmas story, the coming of Christ, primarily not just to remember that Jesus came, that's part of it. But rather, they retell this story to gain confidence as uh, they waited and as we wait and watch for Christ's second coming. And so, uh, it's really a season where we're celebrating the Lord has come, He, he came, uh, Jesus came, and we trust and believe because He promises things like this in John 16 that He will come again. So, Advent is, is a, uh, not a word we use a whole lot, but it just simply means coming. That the first coming of Christ was at the incarnation, and the second advent is when he will return again, as he has said he will. And so the church is a group of people who live between the advents, live between the first and second comings of Christ. And so we, we look back as those who are waiting and watching for the day that he will return. And as a result, that means we are living in uh, a time where we're waiting on all the promises that are yes in Christ to become fully realized. It means that we're waiting as people with a lot of hope and longing and desire. And sometimes, I don't know about you, when you're waiting with hope and longing and desire, that can be pretty excruciating in the present tense, right? And so as those who are waiting between the advents, between the first and second comings of Christ, um, we are a people who are in waiting. And so how we wait is a lot of what Advent is about. How do we wait, and how we wait matters. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, famous German theologian, said that our whole life is an Advent season. That it's not just something that happens during this time of Christmas. Advent is all the time. That we're always in this place of waiting. And so here in our Advent season where we celebrate it in Christmas, 
We're going to look back and look ahead that we might be the people who wait with hope, who wait with joy, who wait with peace, who wait as those uh, who are loved well and love well, and wait with a lot of confidence um, because of who Jesus was and what he came to do. How we're going to spend this Advent season is actually, and, and Katie just read a part of Jesus' genealogy, we'll be reading more of it. Uh, we are going to spend this Advent season looking at some of the women uh, of Advent, the women in Jesus' genealogy, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Mary. Uh, Bathsheba is in there, but uh, she's, she's hinted at but not named. And that may not seem uh, significant to us uh, today, but to the audience of the day, to have a woman read or acknowledged in your genealogy reading was profoundly significant. Um, a genealogy in many ways uh, is like your pedigree. Uh, it, it's kind of like your resume. And so I don't know about you, maybe <laughs> there are people in your family uh, that you just don't like to talk about. Uh, like everybody's probably got that, <laughs> that crazy uncle or whoever it is for you that's kind of like, yeah, we don't talk a whole lot about him. This would have been one of those kind of situations where it's like there are certain people in your genealogy that you wouldn't necessarily want to highlight. And yet, in a male-dominated culture where only the male names would have mattered in a genealogy, Matthew is writing these women into Jesus' genealogy because it was massively significant uh, in understanding who Jesus was and who he came for. And so we're going to look back into their stories because if Matthew thought that was meaningful enough, uh, we should pay attention to that to get a glimpse of the significance of this Jesus who came as a Messiah, Savior of his people, and who uh, they were waiting for and who uh, we await in his return. So three things that um, I want us to consider about Tamar uh, that will hopefully bring us to this table. Tamar has a story, and uh, I made a, an executive decision uh, earlier in this week because I, we hadn't quite figured out, oh yeah, um, we're going to have a bunch of little people in the room this morning because of it being a communion Sunday. And some of you are familiar with Tamar's story. Uh, it's a rough story. Uh, and so we're not, I want you to just hear me say we're not backing away from preaching or reading those kinds of stories, but um, probably most of you have spent your weeks having um, uh, conversations on the fly that you weren't ready for. Uh, we figured we would spare you from one this afternoon with your children, <laughs> uh, and I would encourage you, go to Genesis 38, read, that, read her story. I'm going to story us through it this morning. I'm asking you to trust me that I'm telling you the Bible says this. Uh, but read it. You guys will have some time with it in small groups, um, but uh, felt like it was probably a little much to spring age-appropriate-wise on this morning. So that's why we didn't read the passage uh, in Genesis 38. But there are three things we see in Tamar's story that will really help us um, understand not only who she was, um, but, but prepare us to come to the table. The first is this. Um, it's hopelessly dark. So that's what we're going to talk about first. The second thing is two wrongs, or you could just say multiple wrongs. Two wrongs point to the need for a righteous one. So playing on the two wrongs don't make a right. Two and many wrongs uh, really show the need. We need somebody righteous, a righteous one to come along. And then the third thing um, 
is this the true father-son combo that she really needed and that we really need, okay? So that's thoroughly confusing, right? Hopelessly dark. These are the marks of Tamar's story. Two wrongs point to the need for a righteous one and then the true father-son combo that was really needed. Hopelessly dark. Uh, Tamar is a part of a very broken um, and because Scripture says it, uh, even a wicked family. Um, I don't know, how many of you guys have gotten on uh, Ancestry.com or 23andMe or one of these sites? Yeah? Uh, it's fascinating, right, uh, to go onto these sites, and you can find out a whole lot. Some of you guys know that I'm adopted and that I found my birth family over the last four years and have gotten to meet uh, my birth mother and my birth father and a lot of my half-siblings. Uh, when you find out about where you came from, it's a pretty fascinating experience. It unlocks all sorts of understanding about your life. Um, but, you know, when you watch those commercials on, like, Ancestry.com, uh, they never say, uh, hey, Bill found so-and-so, and he comes from a family full of thieves. And he's so excited that he discovered that his whole family tree is a bunch of crooks, right? Like, they don't celebrate those sorts of stories. But in many ways, that's what's about to happen as we look at these stories of these women. Uh, because it's going to unlock some things that we see uh, in their life, but also in, in who Jesus was. Because having these women uh, in Jesus' genealogy unlocks all sorts of understanding about who Jesus was who he was willing to identify with, and who he came for. And Tamar's particular story uh, is a desperate, hopelessly dark plight. And if you go and read the story this week, you'll realize that there is some uh, resolve towards the end, but it doesn't really get all that much better by the end of her story. Here's, here's some of Tamar's story. She has a father-in-law there. It says uh, in, the, in the stuff that we read, Jacob, uh, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Judah was Tamar's uh, father-in-law. And when you look at Judah's life, um, what you see is a man who in many ways uh, was self-centered, uh, he was a self-advancer, a self-preservationist, uh, and was cruel uh, towards Tamar and cruel towards a lot of other people. Um, he sold his own brother, Joseph, earlier in Genesis 37, into slavery. Joseph was the favorite of their father, right? You guys maybe are more familiar with this story. And they decide to throw him in a pit and hope that something will eat him. And then after they're like hanging out and talking, they're like, you know, maybe we shouldn't just get rid of him. Maybe we should like sell him and make some money off of him. So that's, that's Judah, who is the father-in-law of Tamar. Sells his own brother into slavery in order to make a profit. And Tamar is brought into that family system. This is the, the guy over the family, Judah. And Tamar... Um, is first given to his firstborn son, which was the tradition. His name was Ur. And then later uh, to the next son, uh, his name is Onan. And um, 
Ur was put to death by the Lord because of his wickedness, is what it says in Scripture. And so is Onan. So she has two different husbands who end up dying under the judgment of the Lord because they were such um, wicked people. And Onan, he was, you know, he's second in line, so he was supposed to fulfill his duties. It's called a Leverite marriage, uh, which is basically when the firstborn son dies, uh, you as the secondborn are to take his wife as your wife in order to fulfill uh, what uh, the responsibilities were to the family at the time. And so both of these men die under the judgment of the Lord. Judah then promises, I'll give you my third son, which was natural at the time, uh, and never intends to keep that promise, is what you see in the story. He just kind of basically says, hey, I'm going to tell you this is what's going to happen, but I don't really have any intention of that happening. Uh, And so he's a deceitful guy and effectively basically treats Tamar like damaged goods and tries to get rid of all of his responsibility to her. He leaves her widowed, (laughs) childless, and destitute. Judah was a cruel, callous man towards her. And the story ends, there's a lot of grady details in this story that I will leave to your reading, but the story ends with Tamar in a very desperate place, basically all alone, taking matters into her own hands through a, um, a deceitful scheme towards her father-in-law because she was forced, she was effectively forced with no one who would love and take care of her as they ought. She entraps her father-in-law in a manner that forces him because of his own fear of being found out. He was going to be publicly exposed for doing something horrible. His ego, his perception, all of that was on the line. She entraps him and forces him to be faithful to her in a way that he ought to have been all along. That's Tamar's story. Multiple husbands who were wicked men and a father-in-law who wasn't much better, who left her hung her out to dry and to a place where her only hope was to deceive him in a way, to entrap him, to force him to be faithful to her in the way that he should have been. And this Tamar is in Jesus' genealogy. Matthew doesn't skip over her. He says, no, 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 we're putting her in there because she is a beacon and a signal for who Jesus came for, which was Jesus came for those who were desperate. Jesus came for those who were hopeless. Jesus came for those and said, I'm going to identify with the weak and the vulnerable and the needy. I'm going to come for these type of people because I'm coming and bringing hope into an utterly hopeless situation. And hope, you've heard me say this before, hope it's one of, the, it's one of the, the fruits of Advent, the fruits of Jesus, like joy and peace and patience. All. Hope is not something that is like, uh, we think of it like wishful thinking, like, gosh, I, I kind of roll the dice and I hope that this gets better. Hope, biblically, is confidence. It's assurance that something is true even though everything on the surface would suggest otherwise. That's what hope is, biblically. Hope is, de- is described as an anchor for our soul. It's literally the picture is that the anchor is way down there deep because the surface 
of the water is absolute chaos, and Tamar's life was chaos. And yet, by being included in this genealogy, Jesus is saying, that I'm bringing hope into this hopeless situation. Hope is a necessary agent. I think we all know this in waiting because oftentimes hope, and we see this in Tamar's story, hope is the only thing we have. When I really look at her story, I'm like, I'm not even sure. I mean, we're talking like hanging on by a thread, hope. Hope is the only thing that we have sometimes. And we know because of where we fall in the lineage, right? (laughs) Where we fall in the story, in the redemptive story, that our hope runs deeper than just a slightly better version of our current situation. Our hope, biblically, what Scripture says about the hope that you carry around inside of you, if you have the Holy Spirit, our hope is for the redemption of the entire world. Our hope is for things like all things made new. Our hope is for things like new glorious bodies. And ultimately, our hope is to be with Him. That is the depth of the hope that we have. Tamar's situation was hopelessly dark. And her only hope at the time was in herself acting in deceit to combat the failed men in her life. Which was not a good solution. But it was all she had. So the first thing we see is it was hopelessly dark. The second thing we see in her story is that two wrongs, or you could say multiple wrongs, show the need for a righteous one. Basically, everybody in Tamar's story is, a, is a, a dumpster fire inside of another dumpster fire, right? I mean, it's just a mess. And in many ways, Tamar's story is a crystal clear picture into the state of humanity because of sin. This is early on in the Bible, y'all. This is, the, is in the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis. And we already see that, that from the garden till now, it is absolutely broken because of sin. She's a very complicated, very messly, messy life, mostly because of the sin done against her. But it's not just the sin done against her, it's even her own sin, because that's how sin works, right? I get sinned against, and then I sin against, and I sin against, and the sin gets done against me. And it's really a picture, her story is a picture of what it looks like when left to ourselves. We are all either in her boat which is simply, I'm, I'm fighting to just stay afloat. I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing situational righteousness, making decisions based on, on a bunch of bad data, simply trying to stay afloat like Tamar, or left to ourselves, we're in the position of Judah, which is, is using our position of power poorly, using our position of authority in a self-interested way, And at the very end of the story, when Judah realized that Tamar has entrapped her and his sin is about to become public through her own risky and questionable means, he says this about her. He says this, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Selah. She is more righteous than I. 
I know this may feel like a stretch, but I need you to stretch with me. What he's saying there is that he's saying in this, in this moment, and we see this in such more technical, or even as we come to the table, her righteousness is what saved her in that moment. It, it, it's speaking to the reality that that's, that's what we need, is that righteousness is what saves. But her righteousness in this moment, it was a comparative righteousness, right? In comparison to Judah, she truly was more righteous, more in the right than he was. And when he says her righteousness saved her, it's basically saying she's more righteous than I am. She did something that I ought to have done. I ought to have acted right, and I didn't. And in this moment, her comparative righteousness, it saves her. And comparative righteousness does that, doesn't it? Like, I love comparative righteousness. But comparative righteousness may only save us momentarily in the conflicts of our life, but eventually, eventually, we all end up on the wrong side of that equation where we are Judah. Where we are those who don't keep our word. Where we are those who live with very little integrity. And what this exposes is that if our hope, <laughs> if our hope is in humanity or ourselves being good enough to save ourselves in our own righteousness, we are hoping in something way too small. Like I've been watching um, Inside Bill's Brain. This is the documentary on Bill Gates. Have you guys seen this? It's fascinating, right? I thought he just retired and was hanging out. He's still doing things. No, I mean, obviously a very brilliant guy. But he's working on things um, like he's figured out that more people are dying of, right, not he alone, but they have figured out, whoever they are, uh, that everybody's, you know, many people in the world are dying from diarrhea. Like something that nobody in the United States dies from, but they figured out basically that because of poor septic systems bleeding into water systems, millions of people are dying all over the world because of diarrhea. And he set out on this quest to basically change the way sanitation is done through toilets. And he has thrown hundreds of millions of dollars into this. I mean, like billions of dollars into this. And guess what? They still haven't been able to figure it out. They still haven't been able to make a dent. And it was such a profound picture of like, okay, here's this guy who has this massive position of power and all of this wealth, and he's leveraging all of these resources to fix something like sanitation, and he still can barely make a dent. If our hope in our righteousness, <laughs> our comparative righteousness, I'm just a little bit better than Judah, so that's, that's, that's where I'm going to get my identity. If our hope is in our comparative righteousness, our hope is in something too small. Tamar needed, and we need something more righteous to come along. And that's what Advent screams. Advent screams, Jesus, you came. Come, Lord Jesus, come again. Because until Jesus came... It was just a bunch of people trying to be less wrong than the other person and calling that a basis for their identity. I'm just better than they are. I'm better than. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 what you're waiting on, 
What you're waiting on is on God, our heavenly Father, who is righteous, not compared to us, holy other. And Jesus, our groom, who's not an er or an onan, who is full of grace and truth and who keeps his promises and puts our needs ahead of his own rights. That's the righteous one we needed. So into Tamar's hopelessly dark situation where she was comparatively righteous to every man in her story, we still see the need that the righteousness that we needed and that she needed was something greater than her own righteousness. And what she needed was the third thing I said I was going to say something about. She needed a father, a different father, a different father-in-law than Judah who would give her a good son. Because Judah kept giving her dirt bags for husbands. And what we see when we come to this table is the father that we all desperately needed, who gave us the son that we desperately had to have, the one who was righteous. And so as we come to this table, which is coming to Jesus, we're coming to him, to the one who is our true hope, the one who has said, I give you my righteousness, and it is yours now. You don't have to do the comparative righteousness game and try to earn my favor anymore. You've got it. You don't have to trick me into loving you or being faithful to you like Tamar did. I am faithful to you. That's who we come to when we come to this table. And this table, it is our true Christmas tree, okay? The presents aren't under the tree. They, he hung on a tree for us, his life for ours, his blood for ours. And he's saying to us through this story, through Tamar's story, if you want real hope this season, not just hope in a slightly better version of the story that you have, but real hope that transcends navigating the messy life that you may have, hope that promises no matter how things turn out, this part of your story is only a fraction of your story. And the ending is secure, that there is real hope hope in Jesus. And he says, I'm giving you this table so that you can come and you can taste and see and experience the hope and the peace and the joy that is only found in me. So we're going to come to the table. Paul encouraged in Corinthians, he says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. You hear that? Think about all the men in this story, the Judah, the Ur, the Onan. They were all for themselves. And he's saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this. Eat of this meal, and remember, I'm the father you need. I'm the groom that has come for you to make you my bride. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Remember, Judah made promises, and he didn't keep his promises, neither did her husband's. But he's saying, I, I'm making a promise to you, and it's a covenant that is represented through my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. So what do we do when we come to this table? We remember, we look back, 
like we do at Jesus' incarnation, and we look forward. We proclaim he's coming back. Paul goes on to say, don't eat or drink this cup in an unworthy manner and be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourself so you can discern the body of Christ and eat and drink in a way that doesn't bring judgment upon yourself. So if you're in Christ this morning, um, whether you fully, and maybe some of you fully with a, uh, identify with Tamar's story, you're like, man, that, that's my story. It's a story full of broken relationships um, and full of deceit and full of a messy family. Um, let, let this story speak hope into that dark place and saying Jesus came exactly for that. It's exactly who he came for. He's not afraid of that. He, he doesn't stay away from that. He actually puts that in his genealogy and says, yes, those are the people I come for. So if that's you this morning, spiritually come feed on this sacrament that he's given us. And he's saying, I want to I fill hope into your heart in those places that maybe you feel are desperately dark and have no hope. If you're not in Christ this morning, if you've not received him as your Savior and Lord, Paul is basically saying to us, hey, don't come to this table yet. I want you to come to Jesus because maybe your hope is in something too small. Maybe you're still in that position where maybe where Tamar was at in the moment where she was basically like, my hope's in me because I'm the only thing I can trust. Uh, Jesus is saying, hey, set down your hope in yourself. Set down your hope and a better father-in-law or a better husband, and come to me uh, because I have life uh, that you were made to have only in me. And so come to him and then come to the table and eat the meal that basically declares my faith and my hope are truly in him alone, okay? And then there's an invitation to examine, and that's basically this. Um, For this passage, I would say, uh, are you resting in your comparative righteousness? Like, are, are you, is your sense of peace and hope come from the place that you're just better than other people? Because if that's the case, Jesus is saying, set that down. Like, you don't need comparative righteousness. You need my righteousness. And that's what I give you at this table. And we've all got those places. I've got those places in my life where it's like, man, what really gives me a sense of feeling okay is because I'm just a little bit better than. And he's saying, hey, set that down. Come to me and actually rest and find joy and peace and hope in the reality that it was never about you being good enough. This is not good advice. This is good news. That's what the gospel is. It's a proclamation over you that's saying, I'm stepping into your hopeless situation and bringing life out of darkness, okay? So let me pray for us. When you're ready, come down to the center aisles and put out your hands. There'll be a team of people who are happily ready to serve you the sacrament. Um, hang out up here. we got plenty of time. Uh, use this time as an opportunity to pray and meditate. Ask the Lord to meet you. Uh, if you need prayer, there are people up here who would love to pray for you. If you just cross your arms, uh, they would be happy to step in and pray for you right now. If you're coming up with your kids and they're not partaking of the sacrament, we just help the server know that they're not, but they're obviously, um, or maybe it's not obvious to you, bring them up with you. It's a great opportunity for them to witness what matters to you and who matters to you, uh, and and it's a great learning experience for them to be up at the table with you. Um, If you're gluten-free, we have that over here on this side uh, as well. All right, I'm going to pray for us, uh, and then we'll we'll come to the table. Lord, thank you. Thank you for coming.
Um, Lord, I waiting is hard. Um, we're, we're, we might be the worst culture ever at it um, because everything happens so quickly. And yet, uh, I think we're all haunted by the sense that we're, we're waiting on something that we can't make happen for ourselves. I uh, thank you that even for these brief few moments, we can see that really clearly in your word. Um, that like Tamar, um, who uh, felt very alone, I'm sure, uh, and very desperate, um, kind of left to figure it out for herself, I thank you um, that we even get a glimpse of hope in her story. Um, and, and we sit in a very different position than she did. Uh, where we see, we see that you have come and that you've defeated death, you've defeated sin, um, you've you've given us your righteousness, and you've you've called us things like holy, chosen, and dearly loved. Think about uh, how bad Tamar wanted to hear those words, and yet we've heard them. <laughs> those are those are the words you have spoken over us, and you sing over us when we come to this table. Uh, you are not a destitute widow, worthless in society. You are uh, somebody who I have absolutely set my affectionate gaze on. So thank you, uh, Lord, that you're the father, the good father that we desperately needed. Thank you that you gave us your only son and that we've, we uh, worship him and, and experience him as we come to this table through this sacrament. Spiritually feed our hearts on the truth uh, as we... Uh, spend this next season uh, really contemplating and meditating the significance that you came and that you're coming again. We love you. In your name, amen.